Chapter Ten of Sir Nigel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Clive Catterall. Sir Nigel, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Chapter Ten: How the King Greeted His Seneschal of Calais. It would have fared ill with the good name of Tilford Manor House, and with the housekeeping of the aged Dame Ermyntrude, had the King's whole retinue, with his outer and inner marshal, his justiciar his chamberlain and his guard, all gathered under the one roof. But by the foresight and the gentle management of Chandos this calamity was avoided, so that some were quartered at the great abbey, and others passed on to enjoy the hospitality of Sir Roger Fitzallan at Farnham Castle. Only the king himself, the prince, Manny, Chandos, Sir Hubert de Burgh, the bishop, and two or three more remained as the guests of the Loring's. But small as was the party and humble the surroundings, the king in no way relaxed that love of ceremony, of elaborate form, and of brilliant colouring which was one of his characteristics. The sumpter mules were unpacked, squires ran hither and thither, baths smoked in the bedchambers, silks and satins were unfolded, gold chains gleamed and clinked, so that when at last, to the long blast of the two court trumpeters, the company took their seats at the board, it was the brightest, fairest scene which those old black rafters had ever spanned. The great influx of foreign knights who had come in their splendour from all parts of Christendom to take part in the opening of the Round Tower of Windsor six years before, and to try their luck and their skill at the tournament connected with it, had deeply modified the English fashions of dress. The old tunic, over-tunic, and cyclas were too sad and simple for the new fashions so now strange and brilliant coat-hardies pawpoints court-pies poltocks and hanselines and many other wondrous garments party-coloured or diapered with looped embroidered or escalloped edges flamed and glittered round the king he himself in black velvet and gold formed a dark rich centre to the finery round him on his right sat the prince on his left the bishop while dame ermyntrude marshalled the forces of the household outside alert and watchful pouring in her dishes and her flagons at the right moment, rallying her tired servants, encouraging the van, hurrying the rear, hastening up her reserves, the tapping of her oak stick heard everywhere the pressure was the greatest. Behind the king, clad in his best, but looking drab and sorry amid the brilliant costumes round him, Nigel himself, regardless of an aching body and a twisted knee, waited upon his royal guests, who threw many a merry jest at him over their shoulders, as they still chuckled at the adventure of the bridge. "'By the rood,' said King Edward, leaning back with a chicken-bone held daintily between the courtesy fingers of his left hand. "'The play is too good for this country stage. You must to Windsor with me, Nigel, and bring with you this great suit of harness in which you lurk. There you shall hold the lists with your eyes in your midriff, and unless someone cleave you to the waist, I see not how any harm can befall you. Never have I seen so small a nut in so great a shell.' The prince, looking back with laughing eyes, saw by Nigel's flushed and embarrassed face that his poverty hung heavily upon him. "'Nay,' said he kindly, "'such a workman is surely worthy of better tools.' "'And it is for his master to see that he has them,' added the king. "'The court armourer will look to it that the next time your helmet is carried away, Nigel, your head shall be inside it.' Nigel, red to the roots of his flaxen hair, stammered out some word of thanks. John Chandos, however, had a fresh suggestion, and he cocked a roguish eye as he made it. "'Surely, my liege, your bounty is little needed in this case. 
it is the ancient law of arms that if two cavaliers start to joust and one either by maladdress or misadventure fail to meet the shock then his arms become the property of him who still holds the lists this being so methinks sir hubert de burg that fine hauberk of milan and the helmet of bordeaux steel in which you rode to tilford should remain with our young host as some small remembrance of your visit and the suggestion raised a general chorus of approval and laughter in which all joined save only sir hubert himself who flushed with anger fixed his baleful eyes upon chandos's mischievous and smiling face i said that i did not play that foolish game and i know nothing of its laws said he but you know well john that if you would have a bout with sharpened spear or sword where two ride to the ground and only one away from it you have not far to go to find it nay nay would you ride to the ground surely you had best walk hubert said chandos on your feet i know well that i should not see your back as we have seen it to-day say what you will your horse has played you false and i claim your suit of harness for nigel loring your tongue is over long john and i am weary of its endless clack said sir hubert his yellow moustache bristling from a scarlet face if you claim my harness do you yourself come and take it if there is a moon in the sky you may try this very night when the board is cleared nay fair sirs cried the king smiling from one to the other this matter must be followed no further do you fill a bumper of gascony john and you also hubert now pledge each other i pray you as good and loyal comrades who would scorn to fight save in your king's quarrel we can spare neither of you when there is so much work for brave hearts over the sea as to this matter of the harness john chandos speaks truly where it concerns a joust in the lists but we hold that such a law is scarce binding in this which is but a wayside passage and a gentle trial of arms on the other hand in the case of your squire master manny there can be no doubt that his suit is forfeit it is a grievous hearing for him my liege said walter manny for he is a poor man and hath been at sore pains to fit himself for the wars yet what you say shall be done fair sire so if you will come to me in the morning squire loring john widdicombe's suit will be handed over to you then with the king's leave i will hand it back to him said nigel troubled and stammering for indeed i had rather never ride to the wars than take from a brave man his only suit of plate there spoke your father's spirit cried the king by the rood nigel i like you full well let the matter bide in my hands but i marvel much that sir amory the lombard hath not come to us yet from windsor from the moment of his arrival at tilford again and again king edward had asked most eagerly whether sir amory had come and whether there was any news of him so that the courtiers glanced at each other in wonder for amory was well known to all of them as a famous mercenary of italy lately appointed governor of calais and this sudden and urgent summons from the king might well mean some renewal of the war with france which was the dearest wish of every soldier twice the king had stopped his meal and sat with sidelong head his wine-cup in his hand listening attentively when some sound like the clatter of hoofs was heard from outside but the third time there could be no mistake the tramp and jingle of the horses broke loud upon the ear and ended in hoarse voices calling out of the darkness which were answered by the archers posted as sentries without the door some traveller has indeed arrived my liege said nigel what is your royal will it can be but amory the king answered for it was only to him that i left the message that he should follow me hither bid him come in i pray you and make him very welcome at your board nigel cast open the door plucking a torch from its bracket as he did so 
Half a dozen men-at-arms sat on their horses outside, but one had dismounted, a short, squat, swarthy man with a rat face and quick, restless brown eyes, which peered eagerly past Nigel into the red glare of the well-lit hall. "'I am Sir Amory of Pavia,' he whispered. "'For God's sake, tell me, is the king within?' "'He is at table, fair sir, and he bids you to enter.' "'One moment, young man, one moment, and a secret word in your ear.' What you why it is that the king has sent for me? Nigel read terror in the dark, cunning eyes which glanced in sidelong fashion into his. Nay, I know not. I would I knew. I would I was sure, ere I sought his presence. You have but to cross the threshold, fair sir, and doubtless you will learn from the king's own lips. Sir Amory seemed to gather himself as one who braces for a spring into ice-cold water. Then he crossed with a quick stride from the darkness into the light. The king stood up and held out his hand with a smile upon his long, handsome face, and yet it seemed to the Italian that it was the lips which smiled, but not the eyes. "'Welcome!' cried Edward. "'Welcome to our worthy and faithful Seneschal of Calais. Come, sit here before me at the board, for I have sent for you that I may hear your news from over the sea, and thank you for the care that you have taken over that which is as dear to me as wife or child.' Set a place for Sir Amory there, and give him food and drink, for he has ridden fast and far in our service to-day. Throughout the long feast which the skill of the Lady Ermintrude had arranged, Edward chatted lightly with the Italian, as well as with the barons, near him. Finally, when the last dish was removed, and the gravy-soaked rounds of coarse bread which served as plates had been cast to the dogs, the wine-flagons were passed round, and old Weathercote, the minstrel, entered timidly with his harp in the hope that he might be allowed to play before the King's Majesty but Edward had other sport afoot. "'I pray you, Nigel, to send out the servants, so that we may be alone. I would have two men-at-arms at every door, lest we be disturbed in our debate, for it is a matter of privacy. And now, Sir Amory, these noble lords, as well as I, your master, would fain hear from your own lips how all goes forward in France.' The Italian's face was calm, but he looked restlessly from one to another along the line of his listeners. "'So far as I know, my liege, all is quiet on the French marches,' said he. "'You have not heard, then, that they have mustered or gathered to a head, with the intention of breaking the truce and making some attempt upon our dominions?' "'Nay, sire, I have heard nothing of it.' Mm, "'You set my mind much at ease, Amory,' said the king. "'For if nothing has come to your ears, then surely it cannot be. "'It was said that the wild knight de Charny had come down to St. Omer with his eyes upon my precious jewel.' and his mailed hands ready to grasp it. Nay, sire, let him come. He will find the jewel safe in its strong-box, with a goodly guard over it. You are the guard over my jewel, Amory? Yes, sire, I am the guard. And you are a faithful guard, and one whom I can trust, are you not? You would not barter away that which is so dear to me, when I have chosen you out of all my army to hold it for me? Nay, sire, what reasons can there be for such questions? They touch my honour very nearly. You know that I would part with Calais only when I parted with my soul. Then you know nothing of de Charny's attempt. Nothing, sir. Liar and villain! yelled the king, springing to his feet, and dashing his fist upon the table until the glasses rattled again. Seize him, archers! Seize him this instant! Stand close by either elbow, lest he do himself a mischief. Now! Do you dare to tell me to my face, you perjured Lombard, that you know nothing of de Charny and his plans? 
As God is my witness, I know nothing of him." The man's lips were white, and he spoke in a thin, sighing, reedy voice, his eyes wincing away from the fell gaze of the angry King. Edward laughed bitterly, and drew a paper from his breast. "'You are the judges in this case, you, my fair son, and you, Chandos, and you, Manny, and you, Sir Hubert, and you also, my Lord Bishop. By my sovereign power I make you a court that you may deal justice upon this man, for by God's eyes I will not stir from this room until I have sifted the matter to the bottom. And first I would read you this letter. It is superscribed to Sir Amory of Pavia, nom le Lombard, Chateau de Calais. Is that not your name and style, you rogue?' "'It is my name, sire, but no such letter has come to me.' "'Else had your villainy never been disclosed. It is signed Isidore de Charny. What says my enemy de Charny to my trusted servant? Listen. We would not come with the last moon, for we have not gathered sufficient strength, nor have we been able to collect the twenty thousand crowns which are your price. But with the next turn of the moon in the darkest hour we shall come, and you will be paid your money at the small postern gate with a rowan bush beside it. Well, rogue, what do you say now? It is a forgery, gasped the Italian. Um, I pray that you will let me see it, sire, said Chandos. De Charny was my prisoner, and so many letters passed ere his ransom was paid that his script is well known to me. Yes, yes, I will swear that this is indeed his. If my salvation were at stake, I could swear it. If it were indeed written by de Charny, it was to dishonour me, cried Sir Amory. Nay, nay, said the young prince. We all know de Charny, and have fought against him. Many faults he has, a boaster and a brawler, but a braver man, and one of greater heart and higher of enterprise, does not ride beneath the lilies of France. Such a man would never stoop to write a letter for the sake of putting dishonour upon one of knightly rank. I, for one, will never believe it. A gruff murmur from the others showed that they were of one mind with the prince. The light of the torches from the walls beat upon the line of stern faces at the high table. They had sat like flint, and the Italian shrank from their inexorable eyes. He looked swiftly round, but armed men choked every entrance. The shadow of death had fallen athwart his soul. This letter, said the king, was given by de Charny to one Dom Beauvais, a priest of St. Omer, to carry into Calais. The said priest, smelling a reward, brought it to one who is my faithful servant, and so it came to me. Straightway I sent for this man, that he should come to me. Meanwhile the priest has returned, so that de Charny may think that his message is indeed delivered. I know nothing of it, said the Italian doggedly, licking his dry lips. A dark flush mounted to the king's forehead, and his eyes were gorged with his wrath. No more of this for God's dignity, he cried. Had we this fellow at the tower, a few turns of the rack would tear a confession from his craven soul. But why should we need his word for his own guilt? You have seen, my lords, you have heard. How say you, fair son? Is the man guilty? Sire, he is guilty. And you, John? And you, Walter? And you, Hubert? And you, my lord bishop? You are all of one mind, then? He is guilty of the betrayal of his trust. And the punishment? It can be only death, said the prince, and each in turn the others nodded their agreement. Amory of Pavia, you have heard your doom, said Edward, leaning his chin upon his hand and glooming at the cowering Italian. Step forward, you, archer at the door, you with the black beard. Draw your sword. Nay, you white-faced rogue, I would not dishonour this roof-tree by your blood. It is your heels, not your head, that we want. 
Hack off those golden spurs of knighthood with your sword, archer. "'Twas I who gave them, and I who take them back. "'Ha! They fly across the room, "'and with them every bond betwixt you "'and the worshipful order whose sign and badge they are. "'Now, lead him out on the heath afar from the house, "'where his carrion can best lie, "'and hew his scheming head from his body "'as a warning to all such traitors.' "'The Italian, who had slipped from his chair to his knees, "'uttered a cry of despair "'as an archer seized him by either shoulder.' writhing out of their grip he threw himself upon the floor and clutched at the king's feet spare me most dread lord spare me i beseech you in the name of christ's passion i implore your grace and pardon bethink you my good and dear lord how many years have i served under your banners and how many services i have rendered was it not i who found the ford upon the seine two days before the great battle was it not i also who marshalled the attack at the intaking of calais I have a wife and four children in Italy, great king, and it was the thought of them which led me to fall from my duty, for this money would have allowed me to leave the wars and to see them once more. Mercy, my liege, mercy, I implore. The English are a rough race, but not a cruel one. The king sat with a face of doom, but the others looked askance and fidgeted in their seats. Indeed, my fair liege, said Chandos, I pray you that you will abate somewhat of your anger. Edward shook his head curtly. "'Be silent, John. It shall be as I have said.' "'I pray you, my dear and honoured liege, not to act with overmuch haste in the matter,' said Manny. "'Bind him and hold him until the morning, for other counsels may prevail.' "'Nay, I have spoken. Lead him out.' But the trembling man clutched to the king's knees in such a fashion that the archers could not disengage his convulsive grip. "'Listen to me a moment, I implore you. Give me but one minute to plead with you, and then do what you will.' The king leaned back in his chair. "'Speak and have done,' said he. "'You must spare me, my noble liege. For your own sake I say that you must spare me, for I can set you in the way of such a knightly adventure as will gladden your heart. Bethink you, sire, that this de Chani and his comrades know nothing of their plans having gone awry. If I do but send them a message, they will surely come to the postern gate. Then, if we have placed our bushment with skill, we shall have such a capture and such a ransom as will fill your coffers. He and his comrades should be worth a good hundred thousand crowns. Edward spurned the Italian away from him with his foot until he sprawled among the rushes, but even as he lay there, like a wounded snake, his dark eyes never left the king's face. You double traitor! You would sell Calais to de Charny, and then in turn you would sell de Charny to me. How dare you suppose that I, or any noble knight, had such a huckster's soul as to think only of ransoms where honour is to be won. Could I, or any true man, be so catliff and so thrall? You have sealed your own doom. Lead him out. One instant, I pray you, my fair and most sweet lord, cried the prince, assuage your wrath yet a little while, for this man's reed deserves perhaps more thought than we have given it. He has turned your noble soul sick with his talk of ransoms, but look at it, I pray you, from the side of honour. And where could we find such hope of worshipfully winning worship? I pray you to let me put my body in this adventure, for it is one from which, if rightly handled, much advancement is to be gained. Edward looked with sparkling eyes at the noble youth at his side. Never was hound more keen on the track of stricken heart than you on the hope of honour, fair son, said he. Um, how do you conceive the matter in your mind? Dishani and his men will be such as are worth going far to meet, for he will have the pick of France under his banner that night. 
If we did as this man says, and awaited him with the same number of lances, then I cannot think that there is any spot in Christendom where one would rather be than in Calais that night. By the rude, fair son, you are right, cried the king, his face shining with the thought. Now, which of you, John Chandos or Walter Manny, will take the thing in charge? He looked mischievously from one to the other, like a master who dangles a bone betwixt two fierce old hounds. All they had to say was in their burning, longing eyes. Nay, John, you must not take it amiss, but it is Walter's turn, and he shall have it. Shall we not all go under your banner, sire, or that of the prince? Nay, it is not fitting that the royal banners of England should be advanced in so small an adventure. And yet, if you have space in your ranks for two more cavaliers, both the prince and I would ride with you that night. The young man stooped and kissed his father's hand. Take this man in your charge, Walter, and do with him as you will. Guard well, lest he betray us once again. Take him from my sight, for his breath poisons the room. And now, uh, Nigel, if that worthy greybeard of thine would fain twang his harp or sing to us, but what in God's name would you have? He had turned to find his young host upon his knee, and his flaxen head bent in entreaty. What is it, man? What do you crave? A boon, fair liege. Well, well. Am I to have no peace to-night, with a traitor kneeling to me in front, and a true man on his knees behind? Out with it, Nigel, what would you have? To come with you to Calais. By the rood, your request is fair enough, seeing that our plot is hatched beneath your very roof. How say you, Walter? Will you take him, armour and all? asked King Edward. Say, rather, will you take me, said Chandos. We two are rivals in honour, Walter, but I am very sure that you would not hold me back. Nay, John. I would be proud to have the best lance in Christendom beneath my banner, and I to follow so knightly a leader, but Nigel Loring is my squire, and so he comes with us also. Then that is settled, said the king, and now there is no need for hurry, since there can be no move until the moon has changed, so I pray you to pass the flagon once again, and to drink with me to the good knights of France. May they be of great heart and high of enterprise when we all meet once more within the castle wall of Calais. End of chapter 10